Welcome to the Boyd Meets World Podcast. I was very lucky to be joined today by ESPN writer extraordinaire Kevin Pelton. Kevin does incredible statistical analysis work on the NBA for ESPN, uh, but is also a UW grad and a huge UW basketball fan. He joined me to discuss this year's very exciting Husky basketball season, and we broke down how the team can develop a more efficient offense, uh, whether the Nevada and SPU scrimmages have any weight to them, uh, the best case, worst case for this team, and much, much more. Enjoy it. Right, I'm here with uh, with Kevin Pelton, ESPN writer, host of the fabulous Pelton Cast. Uh, thank you so much, Kevin, for being gracious with your time this morning. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, thank you for bringing up uh, as we're talking in, in the litany of of uh, uh, in- increasingly peculiar Chris Peterson decisions for bringing up the Arizona <laughs> non knee in 2014. That was one that was forgotten to history, but still one that was uh, that still has me scratching my head four years later. I think people, yeah, have probably forgotten it because of the fact that that season was largely forgotten, but uh, it, it, it still stuck out when I was going back through it in my head, maybe not in the moment. Yeah, it's it's one that uh, that got brought up in the context of what's been going on lately, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk today about Husky basketball. Um, so you graduated from UW when? 2004. 2004. So you were right there at the at the dawn of the, of the fun times uh, with Husky basketball. But my question to you is, uh, so you're, you're a food enthusiast, you know, big Taco Time fan. Um, you know, you've talked plenty about the, the best food in Seattle. If, uh, if during your time at UW, you know, if someone is trying to look for you at a place in the Ave, where are you most likely to be found? Uh, I mean, the, first off, I appreciate that you used food enthusiast instead of foodie because that sounds way better. I like that, um, yeah. But that definitely didn't happen until after college. I mean, probably the most likely place I was to eat during my time at UW was like the the subway and the and the hub at that point. Oh yes, it was really quite sad. I I did not like explore the Ave nearly enough, and I've kind of always thought about like uh, I don't want to go back to college. Uh, <laughs> being out of college is great, but like like living on campus as a student again or like near campus, like I would take so much better advantage of the food that's available around there. And it's probably improved in the yes. past 15 years uh, too, but I would take so much more advantage of it now. And I, like, I didn't even know with all the, uh, you know, certainly the great Asian food that's around there and just nothing. I might've just supplied you with a Pelton cast idea. There is the best food that they have going back. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. That was the old, uh, dingy hub too. Not the new nice well lit yes. hub. Right. Well, it's been renovated. I mean, cause uh, there was like a renovation while I was there and then it's been renovated after again. And it didn't seem like that long ago that it got renovated while I was there. Right. Yeah. It's, it's looking good these days. But when I first toured UW back in like 2000, I don't know, eight or nine, it walked, seeing uh, Abdul Gaddy walk around down there, it was, <laughs> it, his head was almost hitting the ceiling there. So it was, it was tough, but uh, it has since improved. Um, all right. So last night UW played SPU in an exhibition game. The headline on Go Huskies said uh, UW gets past SPU, which really said it all about how the game went. Uh, if you're a Husky fan watching that last night, what did you see last night that should especially trouble you, um, given how last season ended and how that game looked? 
I mean, I think the big concern that I, I would take from that game would be in terms of the ball movement. I mean, the fact that the Huskies were stuck on four assists like midway through the second half. Uh, I recall four assists and 17 turnovers standing out at one point when I was looking at the stats board in the opposite corner. And that's uh, that's obviously not an ideal way to play basketball. Uh, that That's the, probably the biggest thing I would take from that. Is that uh, is that a product of kind of some sticky hands, or is that just uh, the the design of the offense isn't isn't conducive to getting uh, getting guys open? I mean, you know, when they were running offense, it wasn't generating good shots, and of course, part of the equation of assists is you have to you know actually make the shot to sure. get an assist. Uh, but I, I definitely seemed like when that did happen, that kind of the the default, particularly for Jalen Noel, was to kind of go into a lot of isolation basketball for him. And, you know, that's that's going to work very well against SPU, which doesn't have defenders capable of uh, dealing with his athleticism. Whether that's going to work as well against uh, Pac-12 caliber opponents uh, remains to be seen. So we've had two ex- exhibitions so far, one with a fantastic result that we didn't get to actually see beating Nevada by double digits, and then one that we just discussed that we did get to see uh, where the quality was on full display. So you hit up uh, the Oracle, Kevin Pom- or Ken Pomeroy, this week about the statistical uh, significance of what these exhibition games actually mean. What did you take away from those conversations with Ken as the final conclusion about what we should should make uh, from these games, both as from a from a kind of positioning standpoint in Pomeroy's case, and then as fans uh, taking that taking the uh, uh, the big pieces away from those games? It was interesting. A few things came together. We discussed this on the Pelton cast after that Nevada game and were wondering, you know, how much it meant. And then uh, the next day, Ken Pomeroy for his podcast was issued a call for questions. So uh, I asked about, you know, kind of the significance of that game. And he conveniently had already been starting to think about uh, the the value of charity exhibitions as opposed to kind of these these exhibitions that we're more used to. Uh, against a, a D2 or, you know, D3 opponent like SPU or St. Martin's or, you know, whoever it has been for the Huskies in the past. And then he wrote about that on The Athletic and then also came on the Pelton cast this week to discuss it. And the, I think the biggest takeaway is something that's kind of encouraging for the Huskies, given the way these two exhibitions played out, which is that he, you know, his previous sense was that there isn't almost any predictive value in the exhibitions where you're playing a deep roster, you're you're checking out some of the young players, which, you know, was sort of happening last night uh, against SPU. Not, not, it was still, you know, 36 minutes for Jalen Noel and T. Stiebel. So it wasn't completely that. But, you know, contrasting that to a situation like the UW-Nevada game, where you're playing a team of relatively similar quality and both of the teams, it's not a, it's not a chance to like look at the roster. It's an opportunity to try to win this game and, you know, a real dress rehearsal for what you're going to do in the season. And so, you know, when he looked into those charity exhibitions that were played last year, when there were much more of them because they didn't count as one of your officially allowed exhibition games, which sometimes also include the closed scrimmages, uh, he found that they were about as predictive as looking at the first game of the season in terms of how teams were going to do the rest of the year, which, you know, is still not very predictive because it's only one game, but also is meaningful and, and tells you, you know, some information. So certainly the Huskies going on the road and beating a Nevada team ranked in the top 10. That's that's an impressive outcome. Is that something that that Nevada, the fact that it is not a closed scrimmage, I mean, like for years, UW would play Santa Clara and there'd be kind of rumors about or not Santa Clara, St. Mary's, and there'd be rumors about uh, how poorly that game went. And it didn't seem to really matter at the end of the day. 
Is that something that you could imagine where, you know, given between two teams that that, that game against Nevada somehow uh, has any positioning in, in terms of how you might compare UW to another team that's on the in the tournament picture? I mean, it's tough for me to say exactly what those close scrimmages are like because of the fact that I, I they're closed. I wasn't there. Right. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I have seen similar things, you know, particularly in the WNBA covering the Seattle Storm for many years. They would often do something similar where it counted technically as one of their preseason games, but they'd play whether it was another WNBA team or an international team that happened to be traveling the U.S. The China Chinese national team often does that in, in scrimmages against WNBA teams as part of their preparations for international competition. And so what you see is, you know, number one, it's not always like a 40-minute event like mm-hmm. a normal game. Sometimes you'll go 60 minutes you'll, you'll or you'll break it up into 10-minute scrimmages and do a variety of things like that. And then you'll maybe, you know, want to work on – late game situations, end of game situations. So you put two minutes on the clock and and do that. It's it's much more controlled. It's more similar to a practice than it is the actual kind of game setting that certainly, you know, this charity exhibition was. And then you also don't, you know, you're playing it in a practice facility. Usually you're, there's not fans in the stands. Right. Uh, definitely, you know, the exhibition against Nevada, I think, is much more similar to what you're going to see in the regular season than uh, usually I think those those close scrimmages are. Yeah, exhibitions in college basketball have this kind of funny, funny uh, cachet to them. Just, I mean, everything could be as important or as not important as you want, given that I remember the the 2009 Syracuse team lost to, yep. I think, LeMoyne and then finished number four in the country uh, and with 30 wins. So uh, all of those things are kind of uh, up in the air, but it is interesting that they might have some significance um, versus versus just a, a normal closed scrimmage there. So interesting uh, uh, change in college basketball. One thing I wanted to ask is the the new uh, the new statistic that is being used to compare teams the the net rating is that is that the, the new the new NCAA rating. Uh, what are your thoughts on that as a uh, as a uh, you just kind of a PR perspective? How is it going to be used? Um, the the quality of that statistic as a as a as a comparison of teams. What do you think about the new stat? And I haven't dug into it real closely. My my recollection from when it was first introduced is it's kind of odd because it's like a hybrid of, you know, the the truly efficiency based statistics like you'll find on, you know, the the Ken Palm ratings of teams or Sager and ratings, that sort of thing. And then also, you know, the the ones where you're not allowed to consider margin of victory and only allowed to consider who teams beat and and where those games happened. Uh, which I think Sagarin also has some versions of that, you know, the, so it's kind of a hybrid of those two. And it, it seems like I'm not sure how that's going to work to to combine the two of them because they're they're doing different things. I mean, you know, the goal is still the same in terms of projecting how well teams are going to do forward and, you know, e- evaluating how well they've done in the past. But you're doing it in very different ways. And it definitely seems like a way to kind of try to make everyone happy in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, clearly there is this desire from the NCAA to not encourage teams to run up the score but it you'll probably, as often happens in those situations, leave everyone unhappy because, you know, the traditionalists are like, well, why are you counting efficiency differential at all? And then the, the statistical analysts will be saying, well, why are you kind of watering it down with this sure. other version? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that, that goes as they continue to kind of add more clarity to a very uh, unclear process of, of who makes it in and who doesn't with the new quadrant system as of a couple years ago and now this. Um, so that'll be interesting. Talking about this specific UW team, 
it's kind of an interesting case because the Huskies finished 104th offensively in terms of offensive efficiency last year as, as uh, Ken Palm's ratings go. And their, their best two players in terms of offense and who got the majority of the possessions are Noah Dickerson and Jalen Noel, uh, two guys who don't necessarily scream efficiency when you're talking about their games. So in order to have the, the output of increasing efficiency and making UW a better offensive team, how do you expect them to adjust the levers on that? Is that something where you know, you, you scale back their usage rate and allow other more efficient players, more specialized players to take more shots? Or is it something where you're asking players like Dickerson and Thibault to become more efficient offensive players? I mean, I think it's going to be hard for Dickerson to be more efficient than he was last year. You know, he sort of uh, bears that stigma of, well, all he does is shoot twos, although, you know, he did have the five three-point attempts last season, uh, shot 40% on them, uh, and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, first off, if you get to the free throw line as much as he did and then shoot 79% at the free throw line, you're going to be pretty efficient from that. And then, you know, I think some of it also comes from, like, at the NBA level, it is very difficult for teams to score efficiently in the post because of the fact that help defense is too good and you don't necessarily have the same kind of physical advantages except uh, against a switch that you know can exist at the college level so I, I think Noah Dickerson's offense in the post or that face-up game is very efficient I, w- I wouldn't really want to change much of anything about how he's used offensively in Noel's case I, I think perhaps see the uh, usage scaled back a little bit. He was at 26% last year, right behind Dickerson, which is a lot for a uh, true freshman. But I think the other thing you're expecting is just natural growth in his game in his second year. And, you know, he was asked to do, I think, more than almost anyone expected as a freshman and handled that reasonably well. But yeah, not with great efficiency. And uh, I think that kind of naturally improves. It looks like he's shooting the three, I think, a little better than he did last year when he finished at three five percent that will help and then also yeah you know maybe trying to reduce those isolation situations that we talked about happening against spu uh that that can help i think also in terms of his efficiency mike hopkins talked a little bit in the beginning uh, press conference of this season that that dickerson has been clamoring for more three-point attempts and and given that you said that the uh the free throw percentage was very high and there's kind of a a conventional wisdom out there that if you can shoot free throws well, uh, that'll translate well to to a potential three-point shot that might not exist. Uh, do you think that that's something where there's there's a little bit of smoke to that fire of Dickerson potentially stepping out a little bit? Or is that something that uh, is is something that neither you or I would know unless we're at practice and seeing him shoot? I mean, I think free throw percentage is probably the best way to sort of kind of make an educated guess, but it doesn't always translate there. There are players who shoot free throws well, but never kind of develop that range or vice versa. There are some who don't shoot free throws well and still end up pretty good three point shooters. But, you know, I think him clamoring, it it seems like Noah Dickerson is hears kind of has heard kind of the criticisms mm-hmm. criticisms even strong but you know the reasons that he isn't an nba prospect and it's i think that's tough for him because of the fact that you know he he was playing with ben simmons in high school he was this dominant you know high school prospect but because of the fact that you know kind of the, his size and the style he plays is to some extent something the nba has gotten away from that it hasn't translated into interest from nba scouts so he wants to try to 
change it. And you occasionally see this, you know, he wants to try to change his game to better suit what the NBA is looking for, but it maybe doesn't match up with what can make him most effective at the college game because of kind of the disconnect between those two styles of play. So, you know, I think that's going to be the kind of tension to, uh, you know, if, and, and if he shoots the three reasonably well, then I, I don't think it's a bad thing for him to step out more, particularly when he's playing with Sam Timmons and, you know, mm-hmm. you have two traditional post players on the, on the court that can create more spacing, but you also want to make sure he's down in the post, taking advantage of his skills down there. Yeah. He, I mean, he, he kind of has, I think his, I don't know what his wingspan numbers are, but a very similar uh, frame to Bonzi Colson from Notre Dame who, who made it to the NBA, I think as a product of, of expanding his game from a very similar type of, of repertoire as what Dickerson had coming in. So it'll be interesting to see if that happens. And like you said, the NBA, uh, aspirations of Dickerson are probably hard to separate from uh, from why he wants to do that. So interesting there. Hopkins has kind of alluded to to that question of just general efficiency and I think how to to address that a couple of times in how he has talked about how to potentially activate Matisse Thibel a little bit more as an offensive player this year uh, in the preseason press conference mentioning uh, this isn't related to offense necessarily more of a rebounding out of the zone thing but moving his rebounds or increasing his rebounds up to five or six getting his scoring up to around 15 or 16 from 11 last year he's mentioned is there a reason to think that those numbers that leap is is possible for Thibel or is that something where it's it's coach speak it's a goal it's an aspiration uh, but might not be be achievable I mean, we have seen him, you know, look more to create his own offense in over the summer in the uh, the crossover in those pro am games, and you know, I think that's probably something that Hopkins is looking at is reason for optimism. I mean, I think it's likely that uh, Thibel will will score a little bit more and and be a little more efficient than he did last season, just because of the fact that you know he shot forty one percent from three as a sophomore, 37% last year, but 42 in conference play. And he'll probably settle in somewhere in between those two, uh, in, in between those two numbers, I would expect, you know, maybe 38, 39% from three this year. And, and that'll lead to uh, a little more scoring. But, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there waiting for Matisse Thibel to be like this every night, 15 point a game score. And I think those people are probably likely to be disappointed because, you know, just the role that he's playing as much as it's dependent on shooting three, which accounted for almost exactly half of his three-point attempts each of the last two or his overall field goal attempts the last two seasons like look there's no such thing as a consistent three-point shooter Mm -hmm. that's just that's always going to be subject to randomness and it's going to fluctuate a lot from game to game sure sure so uh, optimism for this season i think uh, it's all in contrast to to the 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 dark ages of, of the last five or six years of husky basketball uh but it's an all-time high uh for for that same time period is this is the most exciting team in your perspective since when? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, in, you know, the it, it's a little tough to remember exactly what our expectations were going into the the Robert Upshaw season because sure. of the fact that then that started so well in non conference play and went so south so quickly, particularly after he was dismissed from the team. But uh, I, you know, I think. Certainly, at the very least, it's since the year that these guys were all freshmen, and uh, uh, along with, of course, Marquise Chris and Dejounte Murray, who mm. who left after that season, and then possibly going back to that season with Upshaw, and then possibly, you know, since it's the first time they're ranked, all the way back to ten eleven in the. Uh, or I guess, yeah, 11-12. I think you'd have to say the, that even though they weren't ranked, expectations were reasonably high for that 11-12 team, which did go on to win the conference title, uh, even though it didn't make the NCAA tournament. Uh, so I'd say probably then, probably 2011 is my my ultimate answer. 
There you go. Uh, what are your best case and worst case scenarios for for this year's team? Yeah, I mean, I think the best case scenario is that you know the Pac-12 is it's in, it's wide open this year. That's how it looks. I think you know Oregon is the the only team that's pretty clearly ahead of. Uh, UW in the preseason expectations. So you look at that. I mean, I think it's a realistic possibility that if everything breaks right, they could win the conference this year. Uh, I think the worst case scenario, you know, if they have some kind of minor injuries and expose the fact that, well, there's this great depth in terms of the returning core from last season, kind of the top eight players. Outside of that, I think one of the differences we saw between the two exhibition games is, yeah, at Nevada, Hopkins basically didn't play any of the freshmen. And then when they were on the court against SPU, they struggled, as you would expect, being freshmen and uh, not having the kind of experience in the zone or in the offensive system that all these, you know, very experienced veterans have. So, you know, I think minor injuries are probably a factor. And, you know, then if just kind of the, the offense doesn't improve that much from what we saw last season and the, the, the zone is still, you know, the defense is relatively still in the same place. Opponents make threes better than they did last year in conference play when the Huskies were number one in that and by a wide margin, which is, you know, not something that typically has a lot of sustainability. All those things, I think that, you know, then you could see this team. I think it, they'd still be better than 500 when you look at the the Pac-12 and and the non-conference schedule, but uh, you know, kind of similar to last season where they're maybe on the fringes of NCAA tournament discussion, but not really firmly in that mix. I see. Uh, so you talked a little bit about Dickerson and kind of the the you know everyone knows that his his uh, his pro potential is probably connected firmly to his ability to end up stepping out and shooting threes um, and becoming. Uh, that type of player. But the other guys that are on this team, Jalen Noel and Matisse Thibel, uh, from my vantage point, project a little bit more smoothly into the NBA. Uh, how do you see them as it currently stands and, and what would they need to really become elite draft prospects, both of those guys? So Thibel, I was I was surprised uh, when I was in Vegas for the uh, NBA Summer League last summer, and and that's a really good opportunity to talk to a lot of scouts and get their perspective, and found that there were a lot of Matisse Thibel fans out there, and you know, I think he's going to be I think he's going to be kind of a polarizing prospect in terms of you know a lot of people will look at what he doesn't do and the fact that he's not really a creator, and usually when you look at guys who end up playing a three and D role in the NBA, typically those players are, you know, kind of sliding into a smaller role after they are, you know, much more go-to scores at the college level that they kind of are forced into that 3 and D role once they get to the NBA. It's not necessarily that you translate that directly from college to the NBA. So I think that's kind of, you know, the, the, that will be the knock against him, the fact that he's not much of a shot creator, not an elite three-point shooter at this point. You know, he's, he's an above-average one, but, you know, when you project him to the NBA, probably a below-average one at the start of his career. Uh, but there, there are also people who look at, I mean, first off, you know, you're projecting him statistically. The steal rate is going to... Uh, benefit him tremendously because that that typically is something that uh, uh, translates, you know, is an indicator that you're going to translate well from college to the pro. Uh, Syracuse players in the past playing in their similar zone have kind of exploited that to probably rate higher than they should have in terms of projections. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it'll work in his favor. And just and, and he has the advantage over a lot of the Syracuse prospects that we have also seen him in a man-to-man defense. Sure. We know that he is not 
well, his steal rate is a product of the zone and his block rate. He was still good in those regards when he was playing man to man and also showed the ability kind of defend one on one in the way that you're going to need to in the NBA. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the defense gives him a floor of being in the mix in the second round and the offense gives him the, the ceiling of, you know, if he really does break through as a playmaker, both for himself as others of getting into the high second round or potentially even, you know, if someone really falls in love with him in the late first round. There you go. Noel is, yeah, Noel is interesting, I think, because it, watching him play last year and, and Husky fans watching him play, the success he had as a freshman, the fact that, you know, he was on the all-freshman team with a bunch of guys who were one-and-done type prospects, uh, you know, kind of made it seem like, well, he should be this NBA prospect. But the scouts never really showed that much interest in him, and I think they've kind of looked at him uh, is someone who, you know, we don't need to worry about him right now because he's not going to go to the league. He certainly wasn't going to go as a freshman and might not even as a sophomore. We can worry about him when he's an upperclassman. And so we'll see if he can change that with his performance this season. But, you know, I'd say I heard a lot less about him as a prospect in, in Vegas than I did about uh, Thibel, who, you know, already was in that category where you have to be paying attention to him as a uh, draft-eligible prospect. Um, you know, I think his, his ability to develop his three point shooting is going to be really critical. He's probably not a good enough ball handler to play primarily on the ball in the NBA. He's going to be in more of that spot up role. So, you know, you want to see him get his three point percentage into the high thirties from the mid thirties where he was last year. Very interesting. Uh, last question here. I asked Darnell Gant this at the end of when I talked to him in December, I said, if, if, uh, of all four of his teams, which one would have, would win if that was a, 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 you know, even feasible competition. And his answer uh, was that if the senior version of Darnell Gant was able to play with the freshman Darnell Gant, so on that John Brockman, <laughs> Justin Detman, uh, Quincy Pondexter team, that that would be the winner. That's not a scenario in this question here, is if you took all of these teams in a vacuum uh, from, you know, the, the beginning of kind of when you left UW until, I guess, now, what would your top two or three teams in Husky basketball history be? Yeah, I mean, the team I would really love to see just get a chance to kind of replay the season was the uh, the 2010-11 team that lost in the second round uh, to North Carolina mm-hmm. in, I want to say Charlotte, but it might have it was somewhere in the state of North Carolina in a game that was played, if I recall correctly, at 9 a.m. Pacific time on yep. a Sunday morning, yeah, the, the very first game of the day. And that was the team that had the highest... Uh, I think the highest Pomeroy rating of any of them, uh, or I guess it was a couple spots below the uh, 2005 team that finished 16th in the rankings. 2005 was 14th, 2006 was 15th, but that was the team that to me feels like it just had the most things kind of go wrong. It was a team that, you know, after beating Virginia by 43 points in the opener in the uh, Maui Classic, then loses a couple close games to Kentucky and Michigan State. And like you flip one of those resu- results, they lost by one at Texas A&M, by two at Stanford. They just kept losing close games by one at Arizona. And you flip a few of those and get them into, you know, kind of a, maybe even a four or five seed as opposed to, I, th- I think they were what, uh, a nine seed that year because, or no, I guess Carolina wasn't a one. So maybe they were they a like, seven and seven. played Georgia. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You you put them in like a more favorable draw like some of those other teams received and you know I think we saw in the in the Pac-12 tournament where they finally did win a, clo- a couple of close games against Wazoo when Clay Thompson went off and in Arizona with the famous cold-blooded dagger by Isaiah Thomas. We saw in that setting how good they could be and if you gave them a chance to just kind of rerun that season with better luck, I'd I'd love to know where they ended up. 
Yeah, I had to remind Darnell about uh, Justin Holiday's inbounds pass uh, against John Henson at the end of that game. Uh, so even despite all of that, all of those scenarios that could have gone one way or the other, uh, they were probably an inbounds pass away from from beating North yep. Carolina in that game. Uh, that was that was a tough one. Yeah, and then just to kind of a fun team with the guard play on that. I mean, obviously there have been a lot of teams, but I mean the fact that you were bringing Terrence Ross, who ended up you know a lottery pick, Terrence Ross and, and C.J. Wilcox, who ended up a first round pick off that bench on that team, oh like gosh. they were just loaded in terms of depth. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a tough one. And then my freshman year team was the uh, the Roten and Ross year, which um, you know was a free throw away from from probably making the tournament and could have uh, could have provided some some uh, some a fun game for sure, if not if not one or two. Uh, in that tournament that year. Um, all right, Kevin, thank you so much uh, for doing this. I really appreciate it. It should be a fun year for the Huskies. And uh, and uh, like I said, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me, and hopefully so. There we go. Uh, take it easy, Kevin. That was ESPN writer and food enthusiast, not foodie, Kevin Pelton, joining me today. Uh, you can check out Kevin's work on ESPN.com. His writing is fantastic. Uh, thank you so much to Kevin for coming on and for all of you for listening to this. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Peace. Peace.